Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Charles Perkins Centre here for a very momentous occasion on uh, the inauguration of the Sydney Policy Lab and to hear from Mark Steers and the director. Welcome, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, Most importantly though, before we begin, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Yvonne Sheldon from the Metropolitan Land Council to offer a welcome to country. Yvonne. Good evening, ladies, gentlemen, sisters and brothers. My name is Yvonne Weldon. I'm a Radjuan from Cowra here in New South Wales. I'm from the waters of the Clare, also known as Lachlan, and all the Murrumbidgee Rivers. I'm the elected chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, who are the culture authority under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act for the land we're meeting on tonight. Welcome to country is an age-old tradition. It is more than just words, it is a spiritual process for honouring ancestors' footsteps we are all walking in, continuing the practice of many generations before us to the many generations to come. In keeping with practice, I bring a message of acknowledgement of the people and the land of the Eora Nation. I bring a respect and recognition of the Eora Nation's culture and identity, promoting a vision of working together as one community and achieving as one community. There's a light that came on. <laughs> I would like to pay my respects to all Elders, past and present, and to all First Nations and non-First Nations people here this evening. The boundaries of the traditional owners are not defined by the hand or by the pen, but through the natural landscapes of the earth. The Eora Nation's country covers the Hawke's River in the north, the Nepean in the west, and the Georges River in the south. On behalf of Metropolitan Lake Labridge Land Council, the Elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal, acknowledge the Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with this land, our Mother Earth. The First Nations of this land are the most resilient, unique and sustainable people on the planet. We are the world's oldest continuous living culture. Our practices have sustained us throughout the generations and it is embedded into the core of this country. Aboriginal people have always shared and traded our resources and our knowledge, traded and shared amongst the nations, the tribes and the clans that have existed here for over 60,000 years, traded for necessity and not for empires. As we all gathered here, let us all remember and acknowledge the many warriors that created pathways for all of us, the ones recognised and the ones you have never heard of. Growing up in Cowra, my great-grandfather, who was born in 1900, spoke to me before he died about the strong and the staunch. I was taught about who fought to give our people rights in this country, and many stories about who walked with us along some of the loneliest roads. I'll never forget those stories, nor the lessons of who stood strong for us and with us. As you continue to do your work, learning and sharing, Remember, it's important to work with Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and Aboriginal people, especially organisations like the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, because when we're engaged, we give back to our people because we actually need to work together for all of us. So don't just have words in your policies and your strategies. Make your plans come alive through action in our communities, with our communities and for our communities. Bringing my people, your people, and our people together. All of us can make a positive change to this country now and into the future. To 
to make that future possible. Let us all draw upon my people's spirits as we continue on our journey. May my people's spirits walk with you and guide you as we strive forward for us all. Again, on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, welcome to Gadigal Land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much, Yvonne, for that wonderful welcome to country. Uh, always a very moving and important uh, part of our public engagement at the University of Sydney. It's a tradition uh, that we're very proud of. It's a legacy that we, we take very seriously, inhabiting uh, uh, this part of, of Sydney, this part of uh, Australia on Gadigal land. So uh, I, I want to acknowledge uh, uh, Yvonne and also acknowledge the traditional owners as well. It's wonderful uh, to have you here. As I said, welcome uh, also all of you to the University of Sydney. Uh, we're in for, I think, a very uh, special evening. Uh, it's great to see so many colleagues and friends uh, and partners and others uh, in the audience uh, here at the Charles Perkins Center. Uh, and this is really uh, a celebration of a number of things. Uh, we're going to hear from Mark tonight. Uh, Anna-Marie Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, is going to moderate a discussion and Q&A. And we're also here, I think, to acknowledge the ambition of everyone in the room to think differently about how universities can engage in our local community, in the national community, uh, and with the world. And I mean, what a time has it been. I mean, Mark's lecture, uh, How Can Australia Save Democracy from the World? When I was walking over here, I suddenly thought, given the month we've had, how can the world be saved from Australian democracy? Uh, <laughs> might be a better title because Here's the challenge we face. And in a way, in a nutshell, this is essentially the premise at the heart of the University of Sydney's research and education strategy. The challenges the world faces are complex, intricate, long-lasting, structural, requiring new ways of acting, new ways of thinking, new ways of being. And yet our political system is short-term, short-sighted, not very complexly engaged with the world in itself, not exploring new ways of thinking and new ways of being. So how do we address that problem? Well, Mark's got some ideas for us tonight. But one way we address that problem is by thinking about how institutions like universities and civil society organizations, non-governmental organizations, and kindred spirits, indeed, in government and the political system, think differently about how we work together. And in particular, how do universities harness that thousand-year view. I mean, we've been here for 160 years. The Gadigal have been here for 80,000 years. We can draw on that. But how do we harness that thousand-year view for the benefit of our communities? How do we harness and then release the extraordinary research that's conducted every day on this campus? How do we harness and release the extraordinary leadership and energy of our students through our educational programs to help address those systematic, structural, complex, multi-dimensional problems that our world faces today. In a nutshell, that is the premise of our university's research and education strategy, and that was one of the motivations for forming uh, the Charles Perkins Center in which we sit tonight, and also the Sydney Policy Lab, which we acknowledge tonight. And it was one of the motivations when we were thinking about uh, who we could find to lead the Sydney Policy Lab. We were thinking we need someone who's got a credible academic sort of track record, someone who's a thinker, someone who can walk the walk, talk the talk, be taken seriously, 
think differently. And of course, Mark is a distinguished political theorist from the University of Oxford, publishing in a range of important areas in democratic theory and the history of liberal democracy, a, a great perspective to have it in this time and age. We also needed someone who had a sense, who had been in the white light heat of politics, who had a sense of the ecstasy and the agony of uh, political life. And of course, Mark Steers was uh, Ed Miliband's principal speechwriter, one of the key authors of the manifesto and the platform for the British Labour Party, uh, and someone who has been at the heart of a range of political movements and political uh, activities. But we also thought, well, we also need, so we need a political theorist. Well, I, we didn't say that. I said that, but we, we, didn't, we didn't say that in particular. We need, we need a thinker. We need someone who's experienced the nature of politics. But we also need someone who is really prepared to engage in the community in these new ways that we're seeking. And of course, Mark was head of the New e Economic Foundation, which was an organization formed to help us think differently about public policy and social policy and to engage with a whole range of people in the process of doing that to help reinvigorate politics. We also wanted someone who could talk to different kinds of groups, not just the same old folks. Uh, someone who was willing to, to get into uncomfortable places. And of course, if you know a bit about Mark's background, he is someone who has worked across industry, worked across community organizations, and of course worked at a range of different universities and in a range of different political contexts. So we couldn't think of anyone better than Mark Steers, and that's why we poached him from Macquarie uh, before he could even get uh, warm in his seat there, and we were delighted to do so. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Mark to uh, uh, speak to us tonight about how Australia can save democracy for the world. Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, uh, Duncan, for those incredibly kind words. It's always an impossibly difficult task to follow Duncan. And thank you to Yvonne for an extraordinarily moving and warm welcome to country. Uh, and I would join Duncan in acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and paying my personal respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Um, it is a huge honor to be uh, thinking, teaching, learning uh, on this land, uh, which has inspired so much thought. Uh, for so many thousands of years. Um, for those of you who don't know me, as Duncan says, I'm Mark. Uh, you can tell from my accent that I'm, I'm not from around here. Uh, I was born and brought up in South Wales, which is uh, a long, long way away, but on a day like today feels you know, more like home. Uh, so uh, thank you for October, which is the same here as it is in Cardiff. Um, as Duncan says, you know, I had a, an academic career. I was a philosopher, a political philosopher for a bit. Uh, and then I had a political career uh, moving to work for the UK Labour Party. Uh, and in that time, what I learned most of all is how to lose a general election. <laughs> so, uh, so I shall tell you about that today. Um, and you know, what we are going to do today is we're going to talk politics and we're going to talk policy. Uh, and that makes me especially glad that that hasn't put you off from coming. Uh, neither the rain nor the subject has done it, so that is great. Um, and I wanted to start in a democratic spirit, really, by just reflecting a little bit on what we think of politics today in the, in the spirit that Duncan said in his opening remarks. So if I could just ask you, I promise this is the only bit of audience engagement I will get, and there is no community singing, despite my Welsh background. Uh, if you could just turn to the person next to you, introduce yourself very briefly, and tell them what you think of politics in Australia today. First thing that comes into your mind. Okay, go! <laughs> 
<laughs> okay! As every university lecturer will know, it's impossible to get the conversation to stop once it's started. Uh, so I hope, you, I hope you've had some thoughts. What, what my uh, team in the lab spent the, the last week doing, uh, along with our uh, partners' um, uh, purpose, we went out on the streets to talk to folks uh, what about they thought about that question. And before I start my remarks tonight, you've heard from your neighbour, you've had your own thoughts. Let's hear what fellow Sydney siders think about that question. Probably egos, um, and yeah, just I think of politicians as their own breed of person. And for me, it's really about people getting involved in the decision-making process and, and getting a say. Um, for many other people, they often feel locked out of that. Power, the ability to influence our world, but disconnected from reality. Uh, I think of Donald Trump, and. Um, yeah, corruption, polarity, and people arguing past one another. You know, not everyone can understand the language of the things that they're saying, and I think, I think language is a huge thing. I think it's really important. I think Australians, when they hear the word politics, they tune out. Confusing. The playing of these games between political um, parties and politicians, and, and not, not, I don't, I don't see that as really. Um, governing in, in the way that I think politicians usually are supposed to. If I think of the word politicians, I think of self-interest, um, and that's what I would probably associate the word politics with, um, because there are a lot of people that get into pol politics for all the wrong reasons. Division, divisiveness. I think it's really disappointing when politics becomes about itself and loses sight of uh, the constituents and, and the policies that matter. People care about policy. They just don't care about petty politics. I still can't believe in 2018 they're still talking about building new coal-fired power stations. Um, if you purely engage you know, with politics, um, you know, for instance through the media or from what you see on TV, um, you're probably going to have a pretty cynical um, outlook on the way things are going. Definitely in the United States currently, I think people are more focused about um, scoring points against the other team and about getting re-elected and I don't think there's enough unity to really tackle the issues together. Look at photographs of, of the current parliament, both state and federal, and you go, and the Senate, and you go, this is not what Australia looks like. This mm. in no way represents the diversity of the country. It's kind of, you know, disappointing. And so I think it's that difference between a career politician and someone who's there, particularly that community, want to represent the best interests. Self-interest. I've, I think I've got to a point now where I can't disentangle politics from politicians. To me, it's all the same. Oh, whoa. <laughs> so it's all a bit bleak. And Sydney Policy Lab is in some ways meant to be an answer to all of that. We've got our work cut out. But tonight, what I want to do is I want to explore the reasons for optimism in what can seem like quite dark times. I want to outline what role the lab has in tipping the balance between political hope and away from political despair. These are very grim times. We didn't prime those folks. We just went and asked them, uh, and that's what you hear. Now, we're all looking for an answer. We know that lots of people are looking for an answer, and perhaps the answer lies in this photo. This is our new prime minister. 
or at least he was the last time I checked. Uh, <laughs> the one thing I've learned around here is you can never be so sure. Uh, it, it's Scott Morrison, uh, and Mr. Morrison, of course, came to power in a very distinctly Australian way through the party room spill. And perhaps as a result of that somewhat unnatural birth, he's wasted no time in representing himself to the Australian public. Now, Gone is the besuited custodian of the nation's finances, the serious man at the Prime Minister's shoulder, and arrived is the new persona, the daggy dad. A man captivated not by economic strategy and political smarts, but driven, he says, instead by three commitments, family, faith, and the Cronulla Sharks. Now, the response to this transformation has, of course, been mixed. To his fans, the Prime Minister's public image is reconnecting the Liberal Party to the people of Australia. To his critics, the change is wholly misconceived. I've read that the modern Australian isn't interested in protestations of religious belief anymore. They don't say fair income, or at least not about coal. But what I want to argue today is that both Mr. Morrison's critics and his fans are missing something. The Prime Minister's image change is a reflection, I believe, of something big, something deep that is going on in our politics right now, something both sides of the political argument are aware of, but haven't had the full courage yet to acknowledge. Putting all that another way, I want to say that the daggy dad image isn't just a nice to have, the clever quirk of a political marketing agent. Instead, it represents the faintest recognition that something big is about to change in our politics. Something that when it hits, won't just lead to the kinds of cosmetic shifts that we've seen so far, but could destabilize everything we think we know about how politics works and how it should work into the future. So what I want to do is to reflect a little bit at start about where that might have come from, that sense that the big change is coming. We live in an age when whole political parties are disappearing across established democracies when new leaders are emerging who repudiate almost everything that's been built in the last 30, 40, 50 years, from Jeremy Corbyn in the UK to Donald Trump in the United States. And all of this is a piece of what we're beginning to see here. People, as you heard in the video, and you might have heard from your neighbor, are fed up with politics as normal. They've lost faith in politicians as a class. They've grown tired of our institutions. They're convinced increasingly that the economy, even when it grows, doesn't work for them. They're eager for something to change. Now, as I say this, I know that some people, I can feel it in the room, some people in the audience think that that may be true of other countries, but Australia is immune. I know that because you've told me. A combination of compulsory voting, years of uninterrupted growth, the remnants of a welfare state protect Australia from big change, it said. There's no populism, no nationalism, no socialism in mainstream Australia. No Corbyn, no Trump, just the centre ground. Now, I'm sorry if this is naivety, but I don't believe that's true. In my view, change is coming. And for those of us who care about this country, it's our job to make sure we shape that change as well as it shaping us. Now, I take my inspiration for this view from a very unlikely place at a very unlikely time. Thoreau in 1922. That's 30 miles south of here and almost 100 years ago, although it takes about 100 years to get there, and that's uh, another political issue. Now, and bear with me, and I'll explain. Back that 100 years, 
a young English author, more successful and younger than I, arrived in Australia trying to make sense of what was going on in the world. Anxious, just as many of you might be tonight, that we might be witnessing the end of global democracy. That author was D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence had grown tired of the United Kingdom in the First World War, back a hundred years ago. He had no time for the bombast and narrow-mindedness of patriotism of a country at war. He left, and he made an odd choice, he left for Italy. And he arrived there just in time to witness the rise of Mussolini and fascism. Uh, and that didn't reassure him either. So he got on a boat and he came to Australia, imagining that perhaps here in a new country he would find a new politics. Lawrence was blind, as most English were, to the horrors that had befallen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. As a result, he thought that Australia might be a democratic paradise. In Australia, he wrote, nobody is supposed to rule and nobody does rule. The only source of authority is the will of the people. The instinct of the place is absolutely, flatly democratic. It's a terre democratique. There's no need to get the wind up over it. It's a granted condition of Australia. Demos is his own master. But nonetheless, after a while, Lawrence began to detect the same two flaws in Australian political life that he had diagnosed elsewhere. The same two flaws that I believe haunt us today. So what were they? The first flaw was what I will call denial. The world was a mess at the end of the First World War. Blighted by decade upon decade of industrialization, countries around the world were witnessing deeper and deeper class conflict. Economic injustice abounded. Lawrence wrote, capitalism has built a world of iron and coal. The cruelty of iron, the smoke of coal. Endless, endless greed drives it all. And the war, he believed, had revealed the truth in its barest bones. A cataclysm has happened and we stand among the ruins. And yet so many people in professional politics, Lawrence argued, had nothing serious to say about any of this. As he would later write, we live in a tragic age, so we refuse to take it tragically. Most of politics was a game, a game played by people who took themselves seriously, but little else, concerned only with the headlines, the who's up, the who's down, and that way was hopelessly incapable of rising to the challenges that confronted the world. That was the first flaw. The second flaw, Lawrence noted, came from almost exactly the opposite end of the political spectrum. It was related to those who claimed to have answers to the big problems of the age. People who didn't deny those problems, but confronted them head on. Idealists and revolutionaries. For them, Lawrence worried that the problem was what we would call purism. There was no shortage of that in Lawrence's time. Communists, socialists, fascists, nationalists, those who wanted to place religion at the heart of life, those who wanted to expel it from the public sphere, they all believed that they had the answer, the single, pure solution to the world's ills. If only the world wasn't so stupid, it would listen. Now, Lawrence had no belief in any of that either. For him, the purists were just as worrying as those who lived in denial. And he was a clever uh, so-and-so, and he said that the reason that he thought that ultimately these two flaws were the same is that they both hid from reality. But the purists didn't deny reality. Instead, what they did was they hid in their fantasies of an ideal future to come. 
They told themselves utterly imagined stories about why it would be all right in the end. This is the trouble, Lawrence wrote, exasperated. The invented ideal is superimposed upon actual living men and women. Socialism, conservatism, Bolshevism, liberalism, republicanism, communism, they're all alike. They never live on the spot where we actually are. They inhabit an abstract space, a desert void of politics, captivated by things which do not really matter because they're derived from worlds that cannot really be. My favorite line of all. Talking to a purist, he wrote, it's like trying to have a human relationship with the letter X in algebra. <laughs> now, Lawrence's great novel about Australia, Kangaroo, is the story of his efforts to find a politics that escapes those two poles. A politics which exhibits neither denial, the empty professional politician, the men in suits, nor the abstract purism of the grand illusions of the big ideologies, reactionaries and revolutionaries. Now, any of you who have read it, I don't know how many people have, but uh, will remember that Kangaroo doesn't end well. The married couple of whom Lawrence writes in the novel depart these shores, having flirted with all kinds of political movements and having found no satisfaction anywhere. Lawrence writes at the end of the novel, Sydney, the warm harbor, it was not a day like this, they crossed over it once more in a blue afternoon. Sydney, its many-lobed blue harbor, the Australian spring, the many people all dissolved in the blue air. Revolution? No. Nothingness. Nothing can ever matter. Not a book to read if you want cheering up. But I hope you might see why now I've turned to Lawrence to make sense of our own times. Because almost 100 years on, I believe the challenges that we face are astonishingly similar. Just as Lawrence noted, we have no shortage of politicians in denial. They're everywhere you look. Denial, climate change, the economy, wages, housing, artificial intelligence, an unwillingness to confront the challenges that face us. But as you'll also know, and especially if you spend some time here on campus and wander down Eastern Avenue or on a lunchtime, We've got no shortage of our purists either. Those who preach the alternative. Perhaps it's a future of closed borders, or perhaps it's a future where private property suddenly disappears and the barriers between people come magically tumbling down. And just as in the early 20th century, although you may be tempted by their idealism, these purists are at heart absolutists, passionately uninterested in those who live around them, but who see things in a different way and therefore unsuited to the task of enhancing our democracy. So just as in Lawrence's time, in Australia today, we're confronted with two ways of doing politics. One that denies the scale of the challenges we face, the other that indulges in empty abstraction, virtue signaling, filter bubbles, the keyboard warriors uh, sitting in their bedroom with nothing but a Twitter row to keep them company. The challenge then is to see if there's anything else available here in Australia that might provide a different course. Well, is there? That's what the Sydney Policy Lab exists to find out. And in the second part of my talk tonight, I want to outline the fundamentals of our idea, or to put it in more lab-like language, the essence of our experiment. One that I hope could have persuaded D.H. Lawrence to stay. Now, this approach, the approach the lab is taking, begins in the one place that Lawrence surprisingly discounted most of all, everyday reality. Or rather, 
the everyday reality of everyday citizens and non-citizens just like ourselves. My argument then is that the this is where the wisdom needed to make the change that we need actually resides, in rooms like this and in collections of people like this. Let me explain what I mean. For too long, so-called experts have said that the challenges we face can only be understood by the independent scholar in the library or the scientist beavering away on their own in the lab. But that's exactly wrong. In fact, it's only by listening to the people who are most affected by change that we can learn how to meet the challenges head on. Want to understand the nature of our evolving labor market? You can't do better than by talking with a worker on casual contracts for her own experiences. Want to know about the realities of climate change? Talk with a family who live without air conditioning in Western Sydney. Want to appreciate the changing nature of globalized migration? Listen to a refugee child locked away for years on end in Manus. I don't mean any of this glibly, far from it. I believe the extraordinary power of the everyday is needed more than ever because of the extraordinary dangers of the moment that we live in. It's the lived experience of those people who are grappling with the systemic failings that we currently face that offer the only plausible politics of change. And at the moment, their perspective is almost entirely missing from any effort to address those failings. This is a powerful rebuke to the ways in which things are currently run. But it's not just a rebuke. It's a powerful, practical program, too. There are, I believe, real opportunities to change decision-making, policy-making, politics, so that it's genuinely open to the experiences of the everyday right now. The changes that we're going to need to make have three parts some of which we can call for together, some of which we can start just doing ourselves. I want to tell you those three things. First, I think, we need to call for the opening up of the formal processes of politics. The secrecy of the party room must be gone forever. Party selections must be opened up to participants of all backgrounds. And more than that, power must be devolved closer to the people whom it affects. There's no reason why in a country as clever as this one, elected officials at Commonwealth or state level or the experts on the productivity commissions should be the only ones to enjoy the decision-making privileges they currently have. Australia needs vibrant city government, proper neighborhood representation. Power should reside at the lowest level possible if it's going to be responsive to the people whose voices really count. Now, we see this demand, most of all, of course, in what's been said recently, by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Look at the Uluru Statement from the Heart. As it diagnoses the fundamental causes of the horrific injustices that Indigenous people continue to face, it places the blame unambiguously in one central place. It is, quote, the torment of our powerlessness. Quote, when we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. Opening up power is where it must all begin. But it doesn't end there. Because second, it's also about doing things that we can do to equip people to do stuff with that power that they still have. 
Democracy is a skill and a habit, a practice, and not just an institution. Power is not just about formal opportunities. It's about all of us having the real ability to grasp them and to utilize them. There's no point just being able to have a right to do something if you can't exercise that right effectively. Now, what can all that mean in practice? Well, schools could teach action civics, giving children a real experience of finding their voice in the classroom, sharpening their influence when they're young. Peak bodies, NGOs, can provide opportunities to so-called service recipients or end users to become genuinely equal participants in the day-to-day -day governance of their lives. Great universities like this one can play our part in making our world-beating research and expertise openly and freely available to those who actually need it. That way, those who don't currently enjoy privileged access can make a far better case for the change that they want to see in their lives, taking on established authorities from a more equal starting point. That's what this policy lab is all about. So opening up formal power, equipping people with the skills and information they need to be able to use that power, that's the essence of our experiment. But it's still not all. Third, I think that might be my daughter. Hello, Bray. Third, and perhaps most importantly, we must do all we can to protect those open and democratic spaces which currently do exist here in Australia and expand them into the future. So what are those spaces? Where is democracy actually happening well if it's not happening in the places that we normally look for? Think of it this way. Most of us in this room are clearly interested in politics and policy. We wouldn't be at the Sydney Policy Lab program launch otherwise. But we probably didn't learn how to be an active citizen in campaign groups or at political meetings. We learnt it through our everyday experience. As my favourite political theorist, Bonnie Honig, puts it, the democratic experiment just involves living cheek with jowl with others, sharing classrooms, roads, and buses. Just reflect on that for a moment. When did you last have a truly democratic conversation? A conversation with someone whose point of view was very different from your own, someone whose background was vastly different, someone whose future prospects looked different. I'm willing to bet that most of you, if you have had a conversation like that recently, haven't had it in an officially political space. You've had it somewhere else. Now, I know back home, I talked from my UK experience, that that kind of thing used to happen in the doctor's waiting room. One of the reasons the British are obsessed with the National Health Service has got absolutely nothing to do with health. In fact, its record on health is fairly mixed. But it has everything to do with shared experience. When I was growing up in, in South Wales, a little village called Dinnis Powys outside Cardiff, I will always remember going as a kid to the waiting room because it was the one space in the village where everybody was in conversation. Rich and poor, young and old, disabled and not disabled, migrant and local. There was literally no division there. People talked to each other. They laughed, they complained a lot, they argued occasionally, and they mourned together when they had to. And it's not just the NHS that can do that. Any society that has museums, libraries, public transport, open public spaces, campuses upon which we feel welcome, buildings 
in which we feel safe and secure. In other words, any society where we can learn the realities of coming together despite our differences simply by living can be democratic. And yet, here's the rub. It's those spaces that are in retreat right now. Closed off to all but the privileged, separate and siloed, increasingly private. Now, I believe we each have a role in this room tonight in ensuring that those trends are reversed and those spaces are opened up to all. That's the only way, really, we can protect our democracy and showcase it to the world. So, power, voice, real, everyday, democratic experience. That's where the answer lies, I believe, to the problems that D.H. Lawrence diagnosed so many years ago. That's what Australia can teach the rest of the world about democracy. Now, I've almost come to the end of my remarks. Let me just share a few thoughts by way of conclusion. As Duncan mentioned, in a previous life, before I headed to Sydney, I had a job in the upper echelons of British politics. I was chief speechwriter to the then leader of the opposition, Ed Miliband MP. Now, I look back on that time with immense fondness now, although my family who are here tonight uh, always try to correct me and tell me that it was actually terrible. Uh, we didn't win that election in 2015, but we were trying to do something differently. Ed and I used to write our speeches together. We'd sit in his small study at the top of his tall townhouse in North London, poring for hours on end over the briefing notes that came from the policy team, the pollsters, the strategists, on long phone calls with political advisors from all over the world, including from here. We were trying then to turn all that technical speak into something that could make an argument and resonate with voters. It was a professional political world that I was in, sheltered from the everyday. But occasionally, the everyday would intrude. One of Ed's young sons, Daniel or Samuel, would scamper up the stairs to disrupt us. My telephone would ping with a text message from a friend taking a walk in East London. Or Ed and I would both just look at each other and realize that what we were writing came from a different world, from the experiences of those who we saw on the streets every single day in that wonderful, diverse, but horrifically unequal city. Now, we tried in those moments to draw those everyday insights into what we produced, to reconnect the political world and the real world. And it didn't always work. But in that effort, I have learned something. If democracy doesn't find a way of opening up to the wisdom that resides in the everyday experience of people at large, democracy will fail. And the consequences of that failure can be just as horrific here in Australia as they are in other countries around the world. So let me actually end where I started with Lawrence. A time of change is upon us, he wrote at the end of the First World War. We are changing. We've got to change. Instinctively, we feel it. Intuitively, we know it. But we're frightened because change hurts. The Sydney Policy Lab exists to play its part in making this change not only painless, but successful. By opening the doors of this great university to anyone who wants to be part of it, by listening to their stories, your stories, their experiences, your experiences, sharing ideas for a better future, by breaking down barriers that we find between people of different backgrounds, different opinions, different walks of life, 
That's how the lab can begin to reshape our politics. I know that some will be sitting there tonight thinking, these are warm words and exciting ideas, but they're, they're devoid from a, another kind of reality, the distance and detachment that we saw in that opening video. So I actually want to end by returning to our fellow Sydney-siders and seeing how much appetite there is for doing things in a new way. So I hope you'll indulge me and just have the final word to our fellow citizens. Probably my friends, my family, and like having fun, I guess. My family. Friends and family, I guess. I really value my family, friends, and uh, I care about social justice, I guess. Uh, my family and my friends, I suppose. Living uh, purposefully and being useful. Family and nature. Healthcare for my family, education for my kids. Definitely say my family, my friends, my study. Uh, I'm a father, so um, actually having a really good world that my kids can, can do some really good and productive things in matters a lot to me. I think there's like a lot of politicians who are very self-interested, but you have some like amazing ones. Um, our political representatives are only going to be as good as uh, the people who back them and the people who demand action. Um, but politics is everything. It's, um, it's uh, how you express yourself, it's power dynamics, it's how, um, you know, if you see a wrong in the world that needs to be corrected, um, you know, politics is the mechanism by which you can, you can solve these problems. I haven't given up on politics because I don't see the alternative. I think inaction just means that someone you disagree with even more is going to be elected. Yeah, so I think the big idea is that like we need to be talking to each other and meeting and doing the long hard yards of not the populist policies but the things that matter to us. How do I get involved? I don't know, I guess those conversations. I'm not afraid to have a conversation with people about politics. Um, and I think on that core level, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where everything begins. For me that's it. It's like it's not us versus them, not left versus right. It's just like people of compassion and people that have not yet been touched by that compassion. So. It's, it's our collective problem. It's our society. If we want it to be better, we have to make it better. If anything that could restore my faith in it is maybe it being a bit more like transparent. So like a bit more understanding of what's actually going on behind the scenes. If you want to get involved in um, and influence policy, especially in Australia. Uh, you know, you're only a, a phone call or, a, you know, rocking up at your MP's office away um, from being involved. And what restores my faith are the many actions of people in the community around me who I see working for change and being really effective on the grassroots level. There's a lot of things happening that you don't read about in the newspapers that can and will change things. Um, I have faith in, in politics and politicians because I have faith in, in people um, in citizenship and getting involved. It is possible. Let's build change together. Thank you. That's great. Um, as we sort of relax into the, the more sort of living room loungy part of the evening, um, the television screen rather frighteningly morphed into what looks like a thousand faces. Um, my name's Anna-Marie Jargos, I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at the University of Sydney. Um, my role here is to uh, talk a little bit to Mark about some of the ideas that he's um, 
laid out for us so beguilingly this evening, um, but also, and I guess by Mark's directive more importantly, to moderate a discussion with members of the audience. So just before I have the sort of slightly privatised section of the discussion with <laughs> Mark, uh, maybe I can invite you to think about some compelling question or some line of discussion that you'd like to engage Mark in. Um, we have to be out of this building promptly at 7.30, so time is not uh, uh, an endless resource. Um, we'll try and get through as many questions as we can. There'll be roving microphones, so I'll ask people to put their hands up um, when we get to that stage in the proceedings. Can I also ask you, though, to think of something succinct to say? This is not <laughs> your chance to be Mark Steers, and it'd be great if you could formulate it as a question, as something that Mark can can respond to. <laughs> you can see I've sat in chairs rather like this previously. <laughs> okay, so in the blurb for this event, Mark, you know, you urged us to put aside the usual affects of political engagement, which you identified as cynicism and contempt. You suggested that we should be generous and humble, open-minded, we should come together in communal collectivities to right a world gone mad. Just to start in, have you always been this optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I mean, I was reading something the, the, the actually this afternoon. A, a friend of mine had posted a, uh, an article from the Atlantic m magazine uh, about Trump and you know, the horrors of going on in the U.S. at the moment. And um, you know, it was a really brilliant but utterly bleak piece about evil, essentially. Uh, and about the you know the people who turned up to cheer as Trump was attacking, um, you know the people who had been brave enough to declare their um, assault. Um, I'm reading the piece. Coming to the answer to the question, reading the piece, I just thought I, d I don't approach politics like that. You know, there is a tradition of political thinking that says you've got to start with fundamental human evil or, or, or you know a fundamental human wrongdoing, uh, and I actually I just always have started from the other side, which is. As the guy said in the, in the last bit of the clips, you know, there's enormous compassion and generosity and faith out there, um, and it is blocked in many circumstances, but it still resides. And um, uh, the the novelist and essayist Marilyn Robinson, I think, always puts that best. Is that that's where the heart of politics of change lies? It's in believing that there is kind of beauty, compassion, and love out there, and it predominates. Mm. I mean. I'm such a temperamentally optimistic person that in my sort of role as dean, I feel frequently required to announce this to people so they can take their own sort of bearings on the advice I'm giving. I so it's almost like a community warning. You know, I'm an optimistic person, but I think this is... Even so, I find that I'm having a sort of little slight uptick in scepticism, which is sort of, you know, like a fun, effective experience <laughs> for me as it happens. But... Part of it, I think, is you are really extolling what you just described now as the extraordinary power of the everyday. And yet, that's exactly the figure towards which so many of our politicians have recourse, right? The everyday man or woman in the street. Um, so much so that it's almost a joke about politicians who will refer to you know, their taxi driver or their hairdresser, i.e. this common touch that they've kind of got. Yeah. What, what's different about yeah. your vision of the everyday yeah. and, and people coming together in everyday context? Yeah. I mean, I think, that's, I think that's the crucial issue. I mean, my, my own view is that the, the fact that politicians, you know, professional politicians, elite politicians do that displays their awareness that something is not quite right. 
uh, and they're trying to close the gap. Sometimes, honestly, you know, when I used to work for Ed, you know, uh, this is being recorded, but don't tell anyone. Uh, Ed always used to say to me, so like, how do I talk about them? Are they ordinary people, or are they everyday people? Or are they, are they, are they honest, hard-working people? You know? uh, and, and you kind of think, well, that demonstrates the problem in a way, because you, you want to get close to you know, folks, uh, but you can't, because the wall of separation is so strong. Um, and uh, there is an amazing sort of, uh, again, Barack Obama reflection on that. He says when, when he would meet people not as a politician, he'd have one experience, and then when he'd meet them as the president or as a candidate, he'd have a totally other experience. And, and I think what I'm trying to get at in the final part of the talk is what can we do to break down institutionally those barriers so we can be more like the people that we think we are when we're on the bus or when we're in the classroom or you know, when we're in the doctor's waiting room. We can be more like that when we're doing our politics. And, and that's part of the magic of the lab. It's like, let's keep our everydayness, the people we think we are, when we're debating politics, policy making, et cetera. And I suppose that kind of everydayness, a sort of distributed democracy, it, I mean, that's, that is, I suppose, the definition of democracy, isn't it? A kind of governance by the people. How do you define power in that? You talk, you've spoken a lot about power, how important it is that multiple access points are derived towards it. What is it? What's your vision of power? Yeah, so, so, so I think you've got to be, you've got to have a dose of, despite all my optimism, you've got to have a dose of realism that there will always be winners and losers in a political contest. And part of the thing about power is that it is the process of winning, get, get enabling your thing to happen. So, you know, if, you, if you've got a position of power, you're able to secure the goal that you have. Uh, and we can't always all be powerful. But, but the, the crucial component, I think, is that that power has got to be dispersed and shared. And very, very simply, it can't always reside with the same set of people. You know? so, so at the moment, what we have is a situation where you know, the thing which is predominantly wrong with politics is that one group of people gets to decide everything. Uh, and they're not necessarily bad people, but they are partial in their ability to represent everybody else. And we haven't constructed a set of institutions or practices or habits which actually give someone else a go. You know? So the ancients, of course, they had the idea of you know, sometimes distributing power by lot. And I, I'm not recommending that, although some <laughs> of Duncan and my colleagues do, you know, uh, that you could actually just say, well, let's randomly give people the power and see what happens on Thursday if you know, Jane is running things. You know? uh, and that's not the right structural device, but it is the right fundamental thought, which is that we're all going to have power you know, sometimes and not other times, but let's that distribution be a little bit more equal than it is now. Okay, and you have said some nice things about the experimental nature of this, so I guess that's some aspect of sort of feeling your way towards something that might be better than what we're sitting in right now. Okay, so to pitch to some audience uh, questions, do we, we have one right here in the front row. We've got another question there, so maybe take these as the first two. Thanks, Mark. Um, I have a question regarding the democratization of technology. Do you see that shaping democracy? Um, do we still need representatives if we can all be heard in a big data world? Yeah, so I, I think the tech question is a hugely important one um, for so many very complex and intercutting reasons. So I'll give you a terribly academic answer, which says a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, on the one hand, technological developments are fantastic at distributing opportunity. And so there is absolutely no doubt that we should be utilizing technology to, to try to get closer to the sort of power sharing that I've been describing in this conversation. I think that's fantastic. I've got two big worries about where tech currently goes. The, the first is, is a simple worry about ownership. 
uh, which is that you know, tech is largely owned by not just commercial corporations, which is fine, but a very small number of those commercial corporations who are extraordinarily um, you know, able to deflect criticism and, and, and you know, not be held to account. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in front of the Congress is the obvious example of that, but, but that's a reality. Um, and whilst that, you, and you can't hide from that reality. So that's my first anxiety. The second, I think, probably more profound anxiety is we don't know yet, as human beings, how we interact with machines. You know, we know how we interact with each other. And, the, you know, sociology, anthropology, you know, English Lit has done a fantastic job for years of trying to understand human dynamics. But how do humans interact with each other when it's mediated by a machine or when actually they're confronted with a robot? And this is a big challenge for democracy that so few people are yet talking about. You know, I read a wonderful paper earlier the week, this week, this was a study, I don't know if you saw it, it was on the ABC actually, that small children trust robots more than they trust their teachers. <laughs> so that if the robot tells them a lie, they believe it because something in their brain is making them think this robot can't be lying. You know, and that, and that just, I think, just have a think a little bit about that, yeah? It's like, the, where does that take us? If you're going to build a democratic structure in a technologically changing environment, we've got to be able to ask very, very hard questions about what that dynamic actually looks like. Um, thank you so much. I actually have two questions in my mind. Um, the first question is, you mentioned the open, like open pol policy and get people with different backgrounds getting involved. So I was wondering, what's the degree of the openness? It's like, are we open to purely Australian citizens? Or are we open to um, Australian citizens with other citizenships? Or are we also open it to uh, permanent residency visa holders? Or, for example, we, um, we open it to international students because they took up a large um, population in the cities as well. That's my first question. And the second question is about, um, the representatives members. So there are so Australia is a multicultural uh, country. So there are different groups like from different culture backgrounds, and then some groups are obviously like underrepresented. Um, so what's your um, approach to these groups? Mm. Yeah, great. So if I could uh, thank you very much for the questions. If I take them together in a way, um, in my personal sense, and this is where we've gone as uh, with the lab with the programs we're trying to work on with the lab. My, my personal sense is that one of the big challenges facing all democracies, you know, not just Australia, but all, all the democracies in the world, is the challenge of belonging, which I take to mean who is actually a member. And again, I think this gulf between our everyday lives and formal politics is absolutely crucial in that dimension. Like, we know, I did a lot of work when I was back in the UK um, with undocumented migrants. So people had come to the UK uh, because perhaps their parents had brought them as young children, but they didn't have formal migration status. And, and these kids, they would go to school normally, they'd ride the bus normally, they'd have friends in the neighborhood, they'd play football out in the park, they were totally members of their community. But then when they got to the end of their school years, they weren't entitled to go to university because they didn't have any citizenship status. And, and that example, I think, really speaks <coughs> to this challenge of belonging, which is, from everybody's point of view, their friends, their family, their teachers, you know, they belonged. But from a formal institutional point of view, they were nobody. Now, there are no easy, straightforward, glib answers to that challenge, because there are all sorts of complex you know, legal entitlements, etc., about welfare provision and about voting rights, etc., which we can't solve in you know, a Q&A like this. 
But I do think that we can say, look, when you look around the world, especially when it's so multicultural, diverse, migration is happening so fast, that gulf between everyday belonging and actual political or formal recognition is going to become one of the central questions that all societies are grappling with. And, you know, I'll just end it again. Sorry, another UK example. But you, you can see it here in the migration debate too. In the UK, we have the Windrush scandal over the, um, you know, the UK summer, our winter. When people who had been you know, in the UK for 40 years had never lived in Jamaica, were deported because of their formal status. And everybody recognizes <coughs> left, right, center. That's, there's just something wrong with that. And so it goes to that central issue. You know, what we feel in our everyday life is just not what's reflected in our formal political structures, and somehow we've got to close the gap between the two. And you might be pleased to know on a local example closer to home, New Zealanders <laughs> from Australia yeah. in a similar situation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just mentioned yeah. that. Did you want to get to the second question, which was around the representationalness of multicultural society in Australia? Y yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, again, I think... Uh, Measuring representation is an important part of what something like the lab needs to do. And thinking about how, well, I think one of the people in the film said it, you know, how do you make the formal representation in, the, you know, in parliament or in state uh, parliaments or in you know, local councils, how do you make it look more like the country it claims to represent? Personally, I think I'm open to all sorts of suggestions about that. You know, quotas are obviously one way of going. Open primary selections are another way of going. My deeper sense is that the social change will often predate the political change, so that you can't always get a quick constitutional fix. Uh, sometimes you can, um, but actually movement building from the from you know, sort of a participatory dimension is the best place to, to look. Um, but that's just a hunch, you know, and uh, I certainly think it's a standard to which we should hold ourselves if we want to claim democratic status. Um. Brilliant speech. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I've also got two questions. First question is around... Um, Maybe I'm going to ask you to pick your favourite okay, question. Okay, pick my favourite one. Oh, okay. I can oh. see this could get to be a bit of a pattern. A question, and if there's okay. space at the end, we'll come back to you. Favourite one, and then I'll ask you another one off-site. <laughs> um, oh, okay, this is my favourite question, and it's a really difficult one, which is, this is all brilliant. Part of the problem of that is facing the world is, and you see happening in Brexit and Trump, is this idea of the insider versus the outsider, the elites versus the, you know, those that have been left behind. How do we, working in the university sector, which is viewed as part of the elites, you know, actually engage meaningfully and um, equally on these issues in a truly participatory way, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a huge issue, I think, Meredith. Thank you for raising it. Look, look to, to do the first part first, I mean, to divide one question into two. Uh, you know, when, again, when I was working for Ed, uh, we hired a guy called David Axelrod, who was an American political strategist who had worked for Barack Obama. And the Labour Party, UK Labour Party, paid a huge amount of money to get his advice, thinking that this, you know, we're going to win the election if we had the best strategist. He flew in with his team arrived, this is about a year out before the election, came into the office, uh, you know, fresh from Heathrow Airport, and s sat down and said, you're going to lose. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, great, <laughs> it's like, thank you. And we said, why? And he said, because the only way you can win now is as an outsider, because people are holding the insiders to, to account or they're blaming them for everything. Some things which are their fault, some things which aren't their fault. But the instinct of more and more voters, or you know, ordinary folk, is to say, 
you know, a, a plague on them, essentially. And uh, David Axelrod was right. We did lose, so he was worth the money. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and then, spectacularly, you know, the whole country kind of lost uh, in the Brexit referendum, which came... You know, that was that, that Brexit referendum was a referendum on, do you like things as they are with the current lot in charge, or do you think that everything should be turned upside down? Everyone like that. My own instinct is that's coming for universities. Yeah? That scepticism about insiders is bound to happen. Um, and so we are going to be subject to higher levels of scrutiny, critiques, some of which justified, some of which unjustified. Um, we see it already in the pages of the newspaper. And we have to have an answer. The only answer I think we can legitimately have is that we are genuinely open to all. And that's partly about admissions policies and you know, where the students come from, what they get the <coughs> opportunity to do. But I think more importantly, it's about whether the knowledge that happens here is genuinely co-created and co-produced by a coalition of academics who work for the university and the public at large. And again, you know, back to selling the lab, that's what the lab is about. We're a space where whoever you are, whatever your community background is, if you've got a policy problem, come and chat to somebody who is an expert here, and through that conversation, let's build something different. And I, I personally just, I, I, you know, I, I kind of passionately, as you can tell, I kind of believe this philosophically, but even if you didn't believe it philosophically, it should be our, like strategic priority because it's coming for you. Mark. Hi. Thank you for a very moving commentary and, and roadmap. Um, it was very inspiring as well. How You mentioned compassion and love. How can we make it safe for people in the democratic system to talk about those things because they're described as fluffy, insignificant, but I see them as being quite fundamental yeah. to, to a thriving democracy. So how can we make it safe for people to talk about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I thank you very much for the question. I, I can profoundly agree that one of the things, which is kind of coming back to Anna earlier question, one of the things deeply wrong with politics is the, the language that it uses or it chooses to use and it thinks is appropriate to use. You know, my, my own answer to how you change that is, is simply by being the exemplar of just by, by doing, because people do respond. Um, you know, uh, a slightly more serious David Axelrod example, he said, he'd always say, when he came to meetings, he'd say, you guys just talk in slogans, but like nobody on the street talks in slogans, they talk in paragraphs. So, so why don't you talk in paragraphs? Uh, and then why don't you talk about love and compassion and commitment, community? Belonging, because those are the things that matter to folks, and those are the way they talk about it. And 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 you know, everybody. When Axelrod said that, all the professional politicians were terrified, because essentially they're stuck in legalese. You know, they don't want to be on the record as saying something like that. Uh, the Scott Morrison thing, I think, is you know, we can laugh about it, and he looks funny with his cap. But, but what he's trying to do is something like that. But but it's not happened yet. And, and so my, my kind of urge for us all is the next time we're in a political conversation, talk as if we aren't. Talk as if you're in a conversation with somebody around the kitchen table. You know, sat at home, having a discussion, someone's just arrived, you're talking. Talk like that. And that's how you can actually make political change. Now I've got a question right up the back. Thank you. Um, <coughs> in Australia at the moment, uh, a good royal commission seems to be the only part of our democracy where 
disenfranchised people get to speak to power and not just be heard, but actually listened to, and sometimes with real meaningful outcomes. Should the next federal government call a Royal Commission on Human Rights? <laughs> I mean, I, I think the Royal Commission point is a really good one because, um, you know, again, uh, being relatively new to Australia, I am, you know, you are struck by the Royal Commission as a device, and it, and it has succeeded in certain important ways. Um, and, uh, and that is very admirable, and, it, and it's something which has been lost from parliamentary traditions elsewhere. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't throw it away. M my instinct, though, is that we need to be bolder in our opening up of political processes than just to hope for royal commissions on bigger and bigger topics. Um, that, you know, really ultimately, change is going to happen through institutional innovation. That's a terrible thing to say, techie thing to say. Uh, that's not how normal people speak. Uh, but, you know, the idea of institutional innovation is, look, look we're, we're stuck a little bit in a rut. And it doesn't mean throwing away the things which are good, but it does mean let's not rely on those institutions, but let's try to create newer, open and more flexible and freer ones. You know, I mean, Purpose Who Helped us, help us Put Together the Videos, um, uh, Jeremy Hyman's works for them and wrote this wonderful book recently called New Power, uh, where he's trying to say, look, if you want an open and democratic politics, it's not going to work in the same way that it worked in the late 19th century. So let's try and imagine together how it could work. Um, yeah, um, it seems to me, not being uh, anything to do with politics, that uh, candidates enter the system bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and full of good intentions. And also ex-politicians, particularly ex-PMs of both sides, once they leave, they sort of rediscover their sane, reasonable sides. Um, <laughs> like, I, I, is, the is the parliament and party bubble really that toxic? <laughs> Great question. Yeah, people always say, you know, you know uh, oh, why didn't they look like that when they were in politics, you know? It's like, they seem really nice now. I don't know if anyone here listens to Ed Miliband's podcast, but everyone says, you know, to me, I, was, I, I wrote Ed's words for four years, and they always come up to me and they say, yeah, but he's so much better now. <laughs> it's like, great. Uh, you know, but the reality is, the thing that freezes them when they're in, you know, either in office or competing for office is an expectation of what this role should be like. You know, there are set patterns of behavior shaped over a long period of time, which they learn from their, their mentors. Having the courage not to do that is just really, really hard. And, you know, I know that people, you know, have legitimate criticisms of Barack Obama as a president, but as a candidate in 2008, he did things differently that people said wouldn't work <laughs> and he shouldn't have tried. And it does show that you can create newness, but having the courage and the boldness to do that requires a candidate of a very particular kind. You know? and, and, you know, we see around the world, I think, now, candidates who are having to do things differently. You know? So, so your, your Trump phenomenon, your Corbyn phenomenon, etc. again, some people will love it, some people will hate it, but it's a function of the fact that people are calling out the tired old professional you know, political speak. Okay, I feel like I'm like some sort of Wimbledon referee <laughs> as I sort of lobby back and forth, but right up the back there. Hi, Mike. My name's Vanessa. Okay. Um, I just want to have a question. So you talked about power in politics and there's no winners or losers, and yet we see Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people tossed around like a hot potato in all areas of politics. And recently we saw um, Tony Abbott as the new Indigenous envoy for Indigenous people, which is quite rude. But anyway, um, so my question is, where does 
So where does that sort of stand in the new democracy, like the, what you're talking about in, in this democracy? Where does Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and well-being of Indigenous people? Mm. Where does it stand in that in, in terms of lack, like how do we stop the discrimination and, and the racism and the inequality mm. that is experienced not only in outside of the university context but also inside the university context? Yeah, one, I mean, uh, uh, look, the most important question of, of the evening. Um, two, two, two answers which are, are not full answers in any sense of the word. The first is by calling it out. And it's remarkable how you know, little that happens. We get so comfortable here in, in the university uh, that we think that these issues are shared and well-known and commented upon. Uh, and and they're, they're simply not. The injustice which Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples have faced is so intense, uh, unparalleled. And our ability to pretend as if it hasn't happened and isn't still happening is just an enormous criticism of us all, and especially, as you say, a criticism of our, of our formal professional political process. So the first thing that we can do is just have the courage to continuously and you know, utterly without apology remind people about the centrality of that challenge. That's the first thing. The second thing, I come back to the very brief remarks I made in the talk, which is that I think that the, the Uluru statement from the heart, the centrality it gives to the question of power and powerlessness is a new beginning. Because it says, as, and we all do know this in the university, that any answers to this challenge, political answers, social well-being, health, they can't be authored and owned by non-Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. They, they have to be the result of the self-determination of those peoples themselves. And those of us who want to play our part in the struggle and in the campaign have to acknowledge Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander leadership of those issues. That is easily said. It's hard to do. But again, that comes back to having the passionate commitment to be needing to start again. I'm going to be very naughty and make a comment more than a question. But I can sort of link it to the last one. But... Um, it goes back to the compassion, speaking about love, speaking in ordinary words, the way you would speak. I have to say, I think Jacinta Ardern is a leader unlike any I've observed because that is what she seems to me to do, completely without guile or effort to speak like it's all just normal. She's not trying at all. And, and, and this is where I, I must admit I was talking about this the other day and I was just unsure because I also love the way that she calls on Maori culture and it seems fully integrated in her persona and I guess I'm asking you to agree with me <laughs> that she is an example, there's a question, that she is an example of something that, re that resembles this kind of politician. Beautifully said. Hi, my name is Matthew. Oh, sorry, is that me? Yep, that's great. Um, I just want to ask about membership and what you think of it in relation to democracy. I see groups like GetUp boasting million-plus members that really are run by like a member of five board members you know, and a deputy CEO and a CEO. What do you think of civil society and how they can actually be truly democratic instead of just boasting something? Yeah, it's... It I, I think the membership issue is a really big issue. I mean, again, another story to share. It's like, when I... I when, so, so, like, 2011, 
I moved away from working at Oxford as an academic into working in politics, but there was a sort of crossover period when I was doing both. Um, the family loved that too. Uh, and, and I was like trying to get academics to think about what was going on in politics. And one of the things I said to people is, well, why can't we do some research on membership, on who becomes members of political parties or campaign groups, organizing? And I said, that, that must be a big issue. And my academic colleagues said, don't be ridiculous. Nobody joins anything anymore. Like, and like membership is, is kind of over. Everyone stays at home now, and they might tweet or they might Facebook, uh, but they don't join anything anymore. And uh, so, you know, I applied, as you do, for a little grant uh, to do this work, and I got very roundly rejected uh, and held a grudge, as you can tell, because I'm telling you the story. Uh, and I thought, okay, fine, you know, perhaps they're right. And then, you know, when we lost the election, and Ed was deposed as Labour leader, he was replaced by uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, you might know, uh, who suddenly said, okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do about membership of the Labour Party. And before you know it, there are 600,000 members of the Labour Party. Uh, I mean, it is astonishing. It's the biggest political party now in a developed democracy from a position that nobody thought anyone joined anything anymore, which is all a very long way of saying people do join things. <laughs> and they join things if they believe two things. First of all, that it will make a difference, i.e. it's something worth joining. And if they think they can have a say in how it makes a difference. And again, you know, Jeremy Hyman's book makes that point really very strongly, that it's not enough anymore for people to feel as if they agree with something. They, they might not join just for that, like they might have done in the old days. They want to join so that they own something, or at least part own it. And if we can create opportunities for that kind of membership, you will see a civil society that flourishes. You know? um, you know, people want to be in the lead together. They don't want to just be card-carrying, passive recipients of stuff. And the more political parties, campaign groups, civil society groups recognize that, the more vibrant our membership bodies will be. Uh, just on the back of that comment, um, if you were to be, say, the general secretary of one of the major political parties in Australia, what are some of the practical changes that you would make? <laughs> Dan, answer that. Uh, yeah, no, you know, there, there, the say is what matters. You know, so influence is what matters. The reason that people joined Labour back back in the UK was because they thought they'd have influence on policy. They thought they'd have influence on selecting their members of parliament, on selecting their local councillors, on selecting their leaders. Uh, and you know, so policy and candidates are what matter in a political party locally. You know, sort of state level and federally. Um, and if you're looking for political renewal, membership renewal, that's what you have to be willing to offer people. It comes at a cost, because as soon as you do that, all bets are off about what happens. Yeah? You know, I wrote a, a piece in The Guardian this week that has a sh very short phrase saying, you know, perhaps we should have open primaries, meaning, you know, should you have selection for candidates where everyone can just vote? And, and instantly people say, no, we can't do that. You'll have some, you know, really crazy extremist. But actually what happened when the Conservative Party in the UK had open primaries is all the moderates won. Because you know, normal folks joined the party in order to be able to vote for someone that they respected in their local area. So look, uh, uh, as you can tell, I'm always willing to take a punt on the democratic answer. Uh, but I am aware that there are consequences and costs of doing that. And that's always going to make it hard to persuade people to go on that journey. Thank you uh, for a really interesting talk there, Mark. And um, just want to raise a question about 
um, I suppose, the education piece. And it seems that we're living in a time of politics where uh, politics is heavily moralised. And that if I don't agree with you on Y, then we can't discuss policy X. Um, I'm particularly thinking here of Jonathan Haidt's work in The Righteous Mind. Yeah. And he finishes the book with a real kind of call towards not demonising, um, is his term, uh, no demonisation of yeah. people who we disagree with. And when we think of kind of the big policy issues that affect us as Australians, the MBN, the NDIS, any of the acronyms, yeah. um, how do we actually move past yeah. that moral background yeah. um, towards discussing as Australians everyday policy issues and, and building into that? I think that's, framework. again, a hugely important issue. I mean, it, it reminds me of what Lawrence was trying to say about purism, which I haven't talked much about in the Q&A. He's basically saying, look, it, it, it's wrong to just be a professional politician, and we've talked a lot about what's wrong with them in the discussion, but he also said it's wrong to think that you've got the answer and everybody else is either an idiot or evil. And, um, and the reason that's wrong is because we live together in society with people who disagree with us. And being democratic means living together in solidarity with those people, in compassion and connection with them. And if you believe that you've got the, the final you know, sort of view on something, you're not going to be that kind of person. And, and I, I am worried that our politics swings between denial and purism, swings between the professional politician, the men in suits, or the campaigner who's absolutely, totally convinced that he's right <coughs> about something. And you've got to be able to create a space in which people can share ideas and respect each other in that conversation. That's what takes me back. Sorry, this is a long answer, but it's really important. That's what takes me back to something like the lab as a shared space. It doesn't belong to any political party, any political tradition, any single campaign group, any single issue. It is owned by the public. And it's a public venue where people should come and hear things which they don't agree with, but can learn to respect or to live with. And like, we need more spaces like that. Coming back to the earlier tech question, the internet is often not a great space for that. It can be, but it's often not. So we need to consciously create environments where people hear things from people they've never met before and perspectives that they've never taken, but can think, all right, I might not agree with that, but this person's got something about them. How can we build a shared future? We've managed to get through 10 questions and answers in less than half an hour, which is amazing, and it seems right and symmetrically <laughs> perfect that Yvonne takes the last question. <laughs> now, now I'm pressured. Um, I, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, politicians and, and, and what is a good politician and, and what is a not-so-good politician. And, and as Aboriginal people, we've lived through all of it, um, and we have certainly are the world's oldest living culture of, you know, of all time. Well, of all, and yet we're not respected in that way. Mm. My difficulty I think I have, whether I'm working in, um, in my community or whether I'm looking at a local government or a state or federal government, and you see these, the variations of what people's decision making that, that's taken place. You know, we go to a referendum for someone that doesn't want to make a decision for something and then get an overwhelming decision um, and then they want to then make a decision as if it's something that they had decided rather yeah. than the people. Right. So f I think the challenge um, and the question I want to put to you from a Sydney Policy Lab perspective is that how do we get intelligence in a politician to actually understand the reality of what we all live? Mm. What we're living is not just about the headline because we seem to see policy respond um, be 
as a response of someone, what some shock jock had said, versus actually the reality of evidence. And so everyone likes to look for evidence here, and I know it's a, it's a wonderful tool. But what is it compared to a policy versus the data versus the reality of what we all live? You know, we say oh, an in, a, a, um, investigation or commission or whatever that happened in the Northern Territory for what took place in Dondale, and then months after that, we had 100% Aboriginal incarceration. We have 54% here in New South Wales from a 3% pop. How does that equate? And people keep talking about this evidence, but yet the greatest evidence is the people. And how do we get the people in the policy rather than the politicians in their heads about their numbers? Because we know that special person, a special kind of special envoy or whatever he may be, in his own electorate, you know, the, the yes vote that he refused to accept in his own party ring actually had an overwhelming response. Yeah. So they are so removed from the reality of what we all live and yet we're living with a legacy of the policies that they continue to make at the expense of all of us. So how does the Sydney Policy Lab yeah. make that change and get the intelligence in the decision-making rather than the headlines making the decisions yeah. for us? Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, Look, again, there's no easy answer and the, the, the challenges are enormous and the sort of injustice is intense. I mean, uh, my starting point, though, and the way that the lab might be able to play its small part in this, is that you've, you've got to do all the work that you do from a principled initial position. And that principled initial position, for me, uh, I, I take from... Uh, a kind of great hero of mine, uh, who, who I have to mention tonight, is a guy called Arnie Graf, who uh, was a civil rights campaigner in the US in the 1960s, 70s, and then a community organizer in Baltimore. And, and I was lucky enough to meet him about five, six years ago, and Arnie changed my life. And the way that he changed it is that he said, look, you want political action. You want something to happen. You want, perhaps you want office or to be elected. He says, all right, oh, that's all fine. You know, and, that, and that's, that goes on. Politicians do that all the time. But you can only do good if you're in that world if you abide by this principle. And the principle was relationship precedes action always. By which he means never speak for someone or on behalf of someone who you don't actually know, who you don't actually spend time with, whose life you don't actually understand or see, and who can't hold you to account. And I think the, the, the challenge that you've identified is like so often in all areas of our elite life, political life, university life, legal life, you've got people who claim to be the spokesperson of something. I don't know the thing that they're the spokesperson of. And, you know, I know this is a bit uh, heretical in a university, but data and evidence alone is not going to do that. Because you can put a graph in front of somebody and, you know, it might reshape a little bit of their technical thinking, but it doesn't reach them here. The only thing that can reach them here and make them behave differently is if they're in real human relationship. And so the fundamental commitment of the lab, and Duncan helped enormously to, to direct this right at the start, is that we won't do any piece of work when we're not in actual collaborative relationship with the people that that work affects. And it's a small commitment, but it's a real commitment, and I hope it will make a difference. Okay, well, I think, oh, well, okay, sure, why not?
I think we've sort of been drawn into a living instantiation of Marx and the Sydney Policy Lab's vision for a democracies founded in talk with our Q&A, <laughs> so thanks to all of you. And I know there were more hands up that I couldn't get around to, but the evening doesn't finish here. Um, we can all take a, a clockwise stroll around the Oval uh, to RD Watt building. Uh, you can just follow the group. Um, recently refurbished, so recently that colleagues only moved into it uh, last week. Um, $82 million of refurbishment <laughs> and new building for the social sciences, the Sydney Policy Lab um, and Shark. Uh, Sydney Social Sciences and Advanced Humanities Research Centre. That's a test for a dean. If you don't know that acronym, you fail and <laughs> you're fired the following morning, I think. But here's a, a little um, map. If, if my description wasn't sufficient, can you please join me in thanking Mark again for okay. a fantastic talk? Well done. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.